Chapter Eleven of Miss Cayley's Adventures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Goldfish. Miss Cayley's Adventures by Grant Allen. Chapter Eleven The Adventure of the Oriental Attendant. I did not sleep that night. Next morning I rose very early from a restless bed with a dry, hot mouth and a general feeling that the solid earth had failed beneath me. Still no news from Harold. It was cruel, I thought. My faith almost flagged. He was a man and should be brave. How could he run away and hide himself at such a time? Even if I set my own anxiety aside, just think to what serious misapprehension it laid him open. I sent out for the morning papers. They were full of Harold. Rumours, rumours, rumours. Mr. Tillington had deliberately chosen to put himself in the wrong by disappearing mysteriously at the last moment. He had only himself to blame if the worst interpretation were put upon his action. But the police were on his track. Scotland Yard had a clue. It was confidently expected an arrest would be made before evening at latest. As to details, authorities differed. The officials of the Great Western Railway at Paddington were convinced that Mr. Tillington had started, alone and undisguised, by the night express for Exeter. The southeastern inspectors, on the other hand, were equally certain that he had slipped away with a false beard in company with his accomplice, Higginson, by the 8.15 p.m. to Paris. Everybody took it for granted, however, that he had left London. Conjecture played with various ultimate destinations. Spain, Morocco, Sicily, the Argentine. In Italy, said the Chronicle, he might lurk for a while. He spoke Italian fluently, and could manage to put up at tiny osterie in out-of-the-way places seldom visited by Englishmen. He might try Albania, said the Morning Post, airing its exclusive society information. He had often hunted there, and might in turn be hunted. He would probably attempt to slink away to some remote spot in the Carpathians or the Balkans, said the Daily News, quite proud of its geography. Still, wherever he went, leaden-footed justice in this age, said the Times, must surely overtake him. The day of universal extradition had dawned. We had no more Alsatias. Even the Argentine itself gives up its rogues, at last. Not an asylum for crime remains in Europe, not a refuge in Asia, Africa, America, Australia, or the Pacific Islands. I noted with a shudder of horror that all the papers alike took his guilt as certain. In spite of a few decent pretenses at not prejudging an untried cause, they treated him already as a detected criminal, the fugitive from justice. I sat in my little sitting-room at the hotel in German Street, a limp rag, looking idly out of the window with anxious eyes and waiting for Lady Georgina. It was early, too early, but oh, why didn't she come? Unless somebody soon sympathised with me, my heart would break under this load of loneliness. Presently, as I looked out on the sloppy morning street, I was vaguely aware, through the mist that floated before my dry eyes, for tears were denied me, of a very grand carriage driving up to the doorway, the porch with the four wooden ionic pillars. I took no heed of it. I was too heartsick for observation. 
my life was wrecked and harold's with it yet dimly through the mist i became conscious after a while that the carriage was that of an indian prince i could see the black faces the white turbans the gold brocades of the attendants in the dickey then it came home to me with a pang that this was the maharaja it was kindly meant yet after all that had been insinuated in court the day before i was by no means over-pleased that his dusky highness should come to call upon me walls have eyes and ears reporters were hanging about all over london eager to distinguish themselves by successful eavesdropping they would note with brisk innuendos after their kind how the maharaja of musafanugar called early in the day on miss lois cayley with whom he remained for at least half an hour in close consultation i had half a mind to send down a message that i could not see him my face still burned with the undeserved shame of the cross-eyed Q.C.'s unspeakable suggestions. Before I could make my mind up, however, I saw to my surprise that the Maharaja did not propose to come in himself. He leaned back in his place, with his lordly eastern air, and waited, looking down on the gapers in the street, while one of the two gorgeous attendants in the dickey descended obsequiously to receive his orders. The man was dressed, as usual, in rich oriental stuffs, and wore his full white turban swathed in folds round his head. I could not see his features. He bent forward respectfully with suppleness to take his highness's orders. Then, receiving a card and bowing low, he entered the porch with the wooden ionic pillars and disappeared within, while the Maharaja folded his hands and seemed to resign himself to a temporary nirvana. A minute later a knock sounded on my door. "'Come in!' I said faintly, and the messenger entered. I turned and faced him. The blood rushed to my cheek. Harold! I cried, darting forward. My joy overcame me. He folded me in his arms. I allowed him unreproved. For the first time he kissed me. I did not shrink from it. Then I stood away a little and gazed at him. Even at that crucial moment of doubt and fear, I could not help noticing how admirably he made up as a handsome young Rajput. Three years earlier, at Schlagenbad, I remembered he had struck me as strangely oriental-looking. He had the features of a high-born Indian gentleman without the complexion. His large poetical eyes, his regular oval face, his even teeth, his mouth and moustache, all vaguely recalled the highest type of the eastern temperament. Now he had blackened his face and hands with some permanent stain, Indian ink I learned later, and the resemblance to a Rajput chief was positively startling. In his gold brocade and ample white turban no passer-by, I felt sure, would ever have dreamt of doubting him. "'Then you knew me at once,' he said, holding my face between his hands. "'That's bad, darling.' I flattered myself I had transformed my face into the complete Indian. Love has sharp eyes, I answered. It can see through brick walls. But the disguise is perfect. No one else would detect you. Love is blind, I thought. Not where it ought to see. There it pierces everything. I knew you instantly, Harold. But all London, I am sure, would pass you by unknown. You are absolute Orient. That's well, for all London is looking for me he answered bitterly. The streets bristle with detectives. Southminster's knaveries have won the day. So I have tried this disguise. Otherwise I should have been arrested the moment the jury brought in their verdict. And why were you not? I asked, drawing back, 
oh harold i trust you but why did you disappear and make all the world believe you admitted yourself guilty he opened his arms can't you guess he cried holding them out to me i nestled in them once more but i answered through my tears i had found tears now no harold it baffles me you remember what you promised me he murmured leaning over and clasping me if ever i were poor friendless hunted you would marry me now the opportunity has come when we can both prove ourselves to-day except you and dear georgie i haven't a friend in the world everyone else has turned against me southminster holds the field i am a suspected forger in a very few days i shall doubtless be a convicted felon unjustly as you know yet still we must face it a convicted felon so i have come to claim you i have come to ask you now in this moment of despair will you keep your promise i lifted my face to his he bent over it trembling i whispered the words in his ear yes harold i will keep it i have always loved you and now i will marry you i knew you would he cried and pressed me to his bosom we sat for some minutes holding each other's hands and saying nothing we were too full of thought for words then suddenly harold roused himself we must make haste darling he cried we are keeping partab outside and every minute is precious every minute's delay dangerous we ought to go down at once partab's carriage is waiting at the door for us go down i exclaimed clinging to him how why i don't understand what is your programme ah i forgot i hadn't explained to you listen here dearest quick i can waste no words over it i said just now i had no friends in the world but you and georgie that's not true for dear old partab has stuck to me nobly when all my english friends fell away the rajput was true to me he arranged all this it was his own idea he foresaw what was coming he urged me yesterday just before the verdict when he saw my acquaintances beginning to look askance to slip quietly out of court and make my way by unobtrusive roads to his house in curzon street there he darkened my face like his and converted me to hinduism i don't suppose the disguise will serve me for more than a day or two but it will last long enough for us to get safely away to scotland scotland i murmured then you mean to try a scotch marriage it is the only thing possible we must be married to-day and in england of course we cannot do it we would have to be called in church or else to procure a license either of which would involve disclosure of my identity besides even the license would keep us waiting about for a day or two in scotland on the other hand we can be married at once partab's carriage is below to take you to king's cross he is staunch as steel dear fellow do you consent to go with me my faculty for promptly making up such mind as i possess stood me once more in good stead implicitly i answered dear harold this calamity has its happy side for without it much as i love you i could never have brought myself to marry you one moment he cried before you go recollect this step is irrevocable you will marry a man who may be torn from you this evening and from whom fourteen years of prison may separate you i know it i cried through my tears but i shall be showing my confidence in you my love for you he kissed me once more fervently this makes amends for all he cried 
Lois, to have won such a woman as you, I would go through it all a thousand times over. It was for this, and this alone, that I hid myself last night. I wanted to give you the chance of showing me how much, how truly you love me. And after we are married? I asked, trembling. I shall give myself up at once to the police in Edinburgh. I clung to him wistfully. My heart half led me to urge him to escape, but I knew that was wrong. Give yourself up, then, I said, sobbing. It is a brave man's place. You must stand your trial, and come what will, I will strive to bear it with you. I knew you would, he cried. I was not mistaken in you. We embraced again, just once. It was little enough after those years of waiting. Now come, he cried. Let us go. I drew back. Not with you, dearest, I whispered. Not in the Maharaja's carriage. You must start by yourself. I will follow you at once, to King's Cross, in a hansom. He saw I was right. It would avoid suspicion, and it would prevent more scandal. He withdrew without a word. We meet, I said, at ten, at King's Cross Station. I did not even wait to wash the tears from my eyes. All red as they were, I put on my hat and my little brown travelling jacket. I don't think I so much as glanced once at the glass. The seconds were precious. I saw the Maharaja drive away, with Harold in the dickey, arms crossed, imperturbable, orientally silent. He looked the very counterpart of the Rajput by his side. Then I descended the stairs and walked out boldly. As I passed through the hall, the servants and the visitors stared at me and whispered. They spoke with nods and liftings of the eyebrows. I was aware that that morning I had achieved notoriety. At Piccadilly Circus I jumped of a sudden into a passing hansom. King's Cross! I cried as I mounted the step. Drive quick! I have no time to spare! And as the man drove off, I saw by a convulsive dart of someone across the road that I had given the slip to a disappointed reporter. At the station I took a first-class ticket for Edinburgh. On the platform the Maharaja and his attendants were waiting. He lifted his hat to me, though otherwise he took no overt notice. But I saw his keen eyes follow me down the train. Harold, in his oriental dress, pretended not to observe me. One or two porters and a few curious travellers cast inquiring eyes on the eastern prince, and made remarks about him to one another. "'That's the chap as was up yesterday in the Ashurst will-case,' said one lounger to his neighbour. But nobody seemed to look at Harold. His subordinate position secured him from curiosity. The Maharaja had always two eastern servants, gorgeously dressed in attendance. He had been a well-known figure in London society, and at the Lords and the Oval for two or three seasons. "'Bloomin' fine cricketer,' one porter observed to his mate as he passed. "'Yes, not so dusty for a nigger,' the other man replied. "'Fust-rate bowler, but, Lord, he can't hold a candle to good old Ranji. As for myself, nobody seemed to recognise me. I set this down to the fortunate circumstance that the evening papers had published rough woodcuts which professed to be my portrait, and which naturally led the public to look out for a brazen-faced, raw-boned, hard-featured termagant. I took my seat in a lady's compartment by myself. As the train was about to start, Harold strolled up as if casually for a moment. "'You think it better so?' he queried, without moving his lips or seeming to look at me. 
Decidedly, I answered. Go back to Partab. Don't come near me again till we get to Edinburgh. It is dangerous still. The police may at any moment hear we have started and stop us halfway, and now that we have once committed ourselves to this plan, it would be fatal to be interrupted before we have got married. You are right, he cried. Lois, you are always right somehow. I wished I could think so myself, but it was with serious misgivings that I felt the train roll out of the station. Oh, that long journey north, alone, in a lady's compartment, with the feeling that Harold was so near yet so unapproachable, it was an endless agony. He had the Maharaja who loved and admired him, to keep him from brooding, but I, left alone and confined with my own fears, conjured up before my eyes every possible misfortune that heaven could send us. I saw clearly now that if we failed in our purpose this journey would be taken by everyone for a flight, and would deepen the suspicion under which we both laboured. It would make me still more obviously a conspirator with Harold. Whatever happened, we must strain every nerve to reach Scotland in safety, and then to get married, in order that Harold might immediately surrender himself. At York I noticed with a thrill of terror that a man in plain clothes, with the obtrusively unobtrusive air of a detective, looked carefully, though casually, into every carriage. I felt sure he was a spy because of his marked outer jauntiness of demeanour, which hardly masked an underlying hang-dog expression of scrutiny. When he reached my place, he took a long, careless stare at me, a seemingly careless stare, which was yet brimful of the keenest observation. Then he paced slowly along the line of carriages, with a glance at each, till he arrived just opposite the Maharaja's compartment. There he stared hard once more. The Maharaja descended, so did Harold and the Hindu attendant who was dressed just like him. The man I took for a detective indulged in a frank, long gaze at the unconscious Indian prince, but cast only a hasty eye on the two apparent followers. That touch of revelation relieved my mind a little. I felt convinced the police were watching the Maharaja and myself, as suspicious persons connected with the case, but they had not yet guessed that Harold had disguised himself as one of the two invariable Rajput servants. We steamed on northward. At Newcastle the same detective strolled with his hands in his pockets along the train once more, and puffed a cigar with the nonchalant air of a sporting gentleman. But I was certain now, from the studious unconcern he was anxious to exhibit, that he must be a spy upon us. He overdid his mood of careless observation. It was too obvious an assumption. Precisely the same thing happened again when we pulled up at Berwick. I knew now that we were watched. It would be impossible for us to get married at Edinburgh if we were thus closely pursued. There was but one chance open. We must leave the train abruptly at the first Scotch stopping station. The detective knew we were booked through for Edinburgh. So much I could tell because I saw him make inquiries of the ticket examiner at York and again at Berwick, and because the ticket examiner thereupon entered a mental note of the fact as he punched my ticket each time. Oh, Edinburgh, miss. All right. And then stared at me suspiciously. I could tell he had heard of the Ashurst will case. He also lingered long about the Maharaja's compartment, and then went back to confer with the detective. Thus putting two and two together, as a woman will, I came to the conclusion that the spy did not expect us to leave the train before we reached Edinburgh. That told in our favour. Most men trust much to such vague expectations. They form a theory, and then neglect the adverse chances. 
You can only get the better of a skilled detective by taking him thus, psychologically and humanly. By this time, I confess, I felt almost like a criminal. Never in my life had danger loomed so near, not even when we returned with the Arabs from the oasis. For then we feared for our lives alone, now we feared for our honour. I drew a card from my case, before we left Berwick Station, and scribbled a few hasty words on it in German. We are watched. A detective. If we run through to Edinburgh we shall doubtless be arrested, or at least impeded. This train will stop at Dunbar for one minute. Just before it leaves again, get out as quietly as you can, at the last moment. I will also get out and join you. Let Partab go on. It will excite less attention. The scheme I suggest is the only safe plan. If you agree, as soon as we have well started from Berwick, shake your handkerchief unobtrusively out of your carriage window. I beckoned to Porter noiselessly, without one word. The detective was now strolling along the forepart of the train, with his back turned towards me, peering as he went into all the windows. I gave the porter a shilling. "'Take this to a black gentleman in the next carriage but one,' I said in a confidential whisper. The porter touched his hat, nodded, smiled, and took it. "'Would Harold see the necessity for acting on my advice?' I wondered. I gazed out along the train as soon as we had got well clear of Berwick. A minute, two minutes, three minutes passed, and still no handkerchief. I began to despair. He was debating, no doubt. If he refused, all was lost, and we were disgraced for ever. At last, after long waiting, as I stared still along the whizzing line, with the smoke in my eyes and the dust half blinding me, I saw, to my intense relief, a handkerchief flutter. It fluttered once, not markedly, then a black hand withdrew it only just in time, for even as it disappeared the detective's head thrust itself out of a further window. He was not looking for anything in particular, as far as I could tell, just observing the signals, but it gave me a strange thrill to think even now we were so nearly defeated. My next trouble was, would the train draw up at Dunbar? The 10 a.m. from King's Cross is not set down to stop there in Bradshaw, for no passengers are booked to or from the station by the day express. But I remembered from of old, when I lived at Edinburgh, that it used always to wait about a minute for some engine-driver's purpose. This doubt filled me with fresh fear. Did it draw up there still? They have accelerated the service so much of late years, and abolished so many old accustomed stoppages. I counted the familiar stations with my breath held back. They seemed so much further apart than usual. Reston, Grant's house, Coburn's path, in a wick, the next was Dunpar. If we rolled past that, then all was lost. We could never get married. I trembled and hugged myself. The engine screamed. Did that mean she was running through? Oh, how I wished I had learned the interpretation of the signals! Then gradually, gently, we began to slow. Were we slowing to pass the station only? No. With a jolt she drew up. My heart gave a bound as I read the word Dunbar on the station notice-board. I rose and waited with my fingers on the door. Happily, it had one of those new-fashioned slip-latches, which opened from the inside. No need to betray myself prematurely to the detective by a hand displayed on the outer handle. I glanced out at him cautiously. His head was thrust through his window, and his sloping shoulders revealed the spy. But he was looking the other way, observing the signals, doubtless, to discover why we stopped at a place not mentioned in Bradshaw. Harold's face just showed from another window close by.
too soon or too late might either of them be fatal he glanced inquiry at me i nodded back now the train gave its first jerk a faint backward jerk indicative of the nascent intention of starting as it braced itself to go on i jumped out so did harold we faced one another on the platform without a word stand away there the station-master cried in an angry voice the guard waved his green flag the detective still absorbed on the signals never once looked back one second later we were safe at dunbar and he was speeding away by the express for edinburgh it gave us breathing space of about an hour for half a minute i could not speak my heart was in my mouth i hardly even dared to look at harold then the station-master stalked up to us with a threatening manner you can't get out here he said crustily in a gruff scotch voice this train is not time to sit down before edinburgh but we have got out i answered taking it upon me to speak for my fellow culprit the hindu as he was to all seeming the logic of facts is with us we were booked through to edinburgh but we wanted to stop at dunbar and as the train happened to pull up we thought we needn't waste time by going on all that way and then coming back again you should have changed at berwick the station-master said still gruffly and come on by the slow train i could see his careful scotch soul was vexed incidentally at our extravagance in paying the extra fare to edinburgh and back again in spite of agitation i managed to summon up one of my sweetest smiles a smile that ere now had melted the hearts of rickshaw coolies and a french douanier he thawed before it visibly time was important to us i said oh he guessed not how important and besides you know it is so good for the company that's so he answered mollified he could not tilt against the interests of the north british shareholders but how about your luggage it'll have gone on to edinburgh i'm thinking we have no luggage i answered boldly he stared at us both puckered his brow a moment and then burst out laughing oh hi i see he answered with a comic air of amusement well well it's none of my business no doubt and i will not interfere with you the why a lady like you he glanced curiously at harold i saw he had guessed right and thought it best to throw myself unreservedly on his mercy time was indeed important i glanced at the station clock it was not very far from the stroke of six and we must manage to get married before the detective could miss us at edinburgh where he was due at six-thirty so i smiled once more that heart-softening smile we have each our own fancies i said blushing and indeed such is the pride of race among women i felt myself blush at the bare idea that i was marrying a black man in spite of our good maharaja's kindness he is a gentleman and a man of education and culture i thought that recommendation ought to tell with a scotchman we are in sore straits now but our case is a just one can you tell me who in this place is most likely to sympathize most likely to marry us he looked at me and surrendered discretion i should think anybody would marry you who saw your pretty face and heard your sweet voice he answered but perhaps you'd best present yourself to mr schoolcraft the u p minister at little kirkton he was aye soft-hearted how far from here i asked about two miles he answered can we get a trap oh hi there's machines always waiting at the station we interviewed a machine 
and drove out to Little Kirkton. There we told our tale in the fewest words possible to the obliging and good-natured U.P. minister. He looked, as the station-master had said, soft-hearted, but he dashed our hopes to the ground at once by telling us candidly that unless we had had our residence in Scotland for twenty-one days preceding the marriage, it would not be legal. "'If you were Scotch,' he added, "'I could go through the ceremony at once, of course, and then you could apply to the sheriff to-night for leave to register the marriage in proper form afterward. But as one of you is English, and the other I judge—' he smiled and glanced towards Harold— an Indian-born subject of Her Majesty. It would be impossible for me to do it. The ceremony would be invalid under Lord Brougham's Act, without previous residence. This was a terrible blow. I looked away appealingly. Harold, I cried in despair, do you think we could manage to hide ourselves safely anywhere in Scotland for twenty-one days? His face fell. How could I escape notice? All the world is hunting for me, and then the scandal— no matter where you stopped, however far from me. No, Lois, darling, I could never expose you to it. The minister glanced from one to the other of us, puzzled. Harold, he said, turning over the word on his tongue. Harold, that doesn't sound like an Indian name, does it? And, he hesitated, you speak wonderful English. I saw the safest plan was to make a clean breast of it. He looked the sort of man one could trust on an emergency. "'You have heard of the Ashurst Will case,' I said, blurting it out suddenly. "'I have seen something about it in the newspapers, yes, but it did not interest me. I have not followed it.' I told him the whole truth, the case against us, the facts as we knew them. Then I added slowly, "'This is Mr. Harold Tillington, whom they accuse of forgery. Does he look like a forger? I want to marry him before he is tried.' It is the only way by which I can prove my implicit trust in him. As soon as we are married, he will give himself up at once to the police, if you wish it before your eyes. But married we must be. Can't you manage it somehow? My pleading voice touched him. Harold Tillington, he murmured. I know of his forebears. Lady Guinevere Tillington's son, is it not? Then you must be younger of Glidcliff, for Scotland is a village. Every one in it seems to have heard of every other. What does he mean? I asked, younger of Gledcliff. I remembered now that the phrase had occurred in Mr. Ashurst's will, though I never understood it. A Scotch fashion, Harold answered. The heir to a laird is called younger of so-and-so. My father has a small estate of that name in Dumfrieshire, a very small estate. I was born and brought up there. "'Then you are a Scotsman?' the minister asked. "'Yes,' Harold answered frankly. "'By remote descent, we are trebly of the female line at Gledcliff. "'Still, I am no doubt more or less Scotch by domicile.' "'Younger of Gledcliff? "'Oh, yes, that ought certainly to be quite sufficient for our purpose. "'Do you live there?' "'I have been living there lately.' I always live there when I'm in Britain. It is my only home. I belong to the diplomatic service. But then the lady? She is unmitigatedly English, Howard admitted in a gloomy voice. Not quite, I answered. I lived four years in Edinburgh, and I spent my holidays there while I was at Girton. I keep my boxes still at my old rooms in Maitland Street. 
oh that will do the minister answered quite relieved for it was clear that our anxiety and the touch of romance in our tale had enlisted him in our favour indeed now i come to think of it it suffices for the act if only one of the parties is domiciled in scotland and as mr tillington lives habitually at cliff that settles the question still i can do nothing save marry you now by religious service in the presence of my servants which constitutes what we call an ecclesiastical marriage it becomes legal if afterwards registered and then you must apply to the sheriff for a warrant to register it but i will do what i can later on if you like you can be remarried by the rights of your own church in england are you quite sure our scotch domicile is good enough in law harold asked still doubtful i can look it up if you wish i have a legal handbook before lord brougham's act no formalities were necessary but the act was passed to prevent gretna green marriages the usual phrase is that such a marriage does not hold good unless one or other of the parties either has had his or her usual residence in scotland or else has lived there for twenty-one days immediately preceding the state of the marriage if you like i will wait to consult the authorities no thank you i cried there is no time to lose marry us first and look it up afterwards one or other will do it seems mr tillington is scotch enough i am sure he has no address in britain but cliff we will rest our claim upon that even if the marriage turns out invalid we only remain where we were this is a preliminary ceremony to prove good faith and to bind us to one another we can satisfy the law if need be when we return to england the minister called in his wife and servants and explained to them briefly he exhorted us and prayed we gave our solemn consent in legal form before two witnesses then he pronounced us duly married in a quarter of an hour more we had made declaration to that effect before the sheriff the witnesses accompanying us and were formally affirmed to be man and wife before the law of great britain i asked if it would hold in england as well you couldn't be firmer married the sheriff said with decision by the archbishop of canterbury in westminster abbey harold turned to the minister will you send for the police he said calmly i wish to inform them that i am the man for whom they are looking in the ashurst will case our own cabman went to fetch them it was a terrible moment but harold sat in the sheriff's study and waited as if nothing unusual were happening he talked freely but quietly never in my life had i felt so proud of him at last the police came much inflated with the dignity of so great a capture and took down our statement do you give yourself in charge of a confession of forgery the superintendent asked as harold ended certainly not harold answered i have not committed forgery but i do not wish to skulk or hide myself i understand a warrant is out against me in london i have come to scotland hurriedly for the sake of getting married not to escape apprehension i am here openly under my own name i tell you the facts tis for you to decide if you choose you can arrest me the superintendent conferred for some time in another room with the sheriff then he returned to the study very well sir he said in a respectful tone i arrest you so that was the beginning of our married life more than ever i felt sure i could trust in harold the police decided after hearing by telegram from london 
that we must go up at once by the night express, which they stopped for the purpose. They were forced to divide us. I took the sleeping car. Harold travelled with two constables in an ordinary carriage. Strange to say, notwithstanding all this, so great was our relief from the tension of our flight that we both slept soundly. Next morning we arrived in London, Harold guarded. The police had arranged that the case should come up at Bow Street that afternoon. It was not an ideal honeymoon, and yet I was somehow happy. At King's Cross they took him away from me. Still I hardly cried. All the way up in the train, whenever I was awake, an idea had been haunting me, a possible clue to this trickery of Lord Southminster's. Petty details cropped up and fell into their places. I began to unravel it all now. I had an inkling of a plan to set Harold right again. The will we had proved. But I must not anticipate. When we parted, Harold kissed me on the forehead and murmured rather sadly, Now, I suppose it's all up. Lois, I must go. These rogues have been too much for us. Not a bit of it, I answered, new hope growing stronger and stronger within me. I see a way out. I have found a clue. I believe, dear Harold, the right will still be vindicated. And red eyes as I was, I jumped into a hansom and called to the cabman to drive at once to Lady Georgina's. End of chapter 11 Read by Goldfish